Anyone here ever sent a letter or an email, like a sensitive one, as soon as you dropped it in the mailbox or as soon as you hit send, you had second thoughts? Like, oh, should I have done that? Maybe, maybe I was too direct in what I said or maybe I should have said it in a different way. And you're, you put it in the mailbox, for instance, back before email, and you're thinking, well, if I get it out now, it's a felony. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what do I do? <clears throat> Paul was very familiar with that moment, that moment of panic. He had sent Titus, his friend Titus, with a very corrective letter to the church at Corinth. This was one where he laid it out. He said, you guys really have to get this together. Um, some scholars say that it was 1 Corinthians that we've already studied. And there's a lot of correction in that letter. Other scholars say, you know what, it, it, even, it was even worse. There was a letter that's lost called the severe letter. So if you know 1 Corinthians, if there's a severe letter out there, it could have been even more direct. He probably wrote this, <clears throat> whichever one, from Ephesus, and he sent it to Corinth with his buddy Titus. Um, do you all have the, uh, the map for us? I want to show you guys, give you some perspective again. Again, the beauty of a small church. All right, there, Ephesus, he wrote it, probably Ephesus, and he sent... Uh, he sent Titus either across the sea or all the way around over here to Corinth. Got it? Notice Troas up there and notice Macedonia up there. You're going to need those in a second. All right. So he sends, sends this letter, apparently pretty direct, sends it with Titus, and it was apparently so explosive, Paul was so concerned how it, this letter would be taken that he could not rest. Turn with me to chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you were with us, you saw this. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Paul can't rest there in Ephesus. So he, he uh, writes in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So you remember that? Show it again real quick. These guys are going to get a workout. So he goes from Ephesus. He's waiting. Uh, he, he's in Ephesus. He, he goes up to Troas, uh, which uh, he, everything's going great. It says there's a revival going on. And he says, you know what? Everything was going great, but I couldn't rest. I, I had no rest in my spirit, so I had to keep moving. And he, he goes across probably to uh, Neapolis there to Philippi um, and over there in Macedonia. Why? Because he's looking for Titus. And he's in Macedonia, and every time the door creaks open, Paul looks to see if it's Titus. He's hoping to get news from Corinth. And eventually, he can't stand it anymore. He, he, he's departed for Macedonia, hoping to find Titus, and with him, news on how these Corinthians responded to this corrective letter. That's the background, okay, for today's lesson. Now let's go uh, with me to uh, chapter 7, and we're going to look at starting at verse 2. But in the meantime, while you're turning, let me ask you another question. Have you ever had to confront someone? Have you ever really had to confront someone that they were really ruining their own life or someone else's life? And God was telling you to stick your neck out there, to actually say the difficult thing, to be that friend who told them the painful truth? Well, today we will see what godly confrontation looks like. And we're going to see what godly comfort looks like looks like and also we're just going to touch on we'll, we'll finish next week on what godly contrition looks like or repentance 
what, what these three things look like. First, what does godly confrontation look like? Well, first of all, let's establish this. Is it necessary? I mean, is it ever necessary? I mean, shouldn't we just keep our noses in our own business? Well, Galatians 6, you can turn with me up there if you want. Galatians 6 verse 1 makes it very clear. We've already studied this letter as well. Paul said to these guys in Galatia, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So, definitely, yes, Obviously, there are times when godly confrontation is absolutely necessary. But if you notice a lot of those words in Galatians 6, 1, it says, Restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Considering who? Yourself. Lest you also be tempted. We're going to see as we go here in our text, this, this godly confrontation begins with a self-examination. What are my motives? That's going to bring us now to chapter 7, verse 2. You finally get to turn there. Now, if you look at verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, you'll probably remember Paul is in mid-exhortation. He's basically been saying, Look, you Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's saying, um, You are open to them, but you're closed off to us. Paul was the one who founded this church. He's like, These guys have come in and they've stolen your hearts from us. Be open to us, not just to them. He says, you've been open with them, or, uh, yeah, you've been open with them, but close to us. He says, now we've been open with you, now please be open with us. So he's in the middle of this exhortation, but we find here in verse 2, a great place to start when it comes to godly confrontation. If you are called to confront someone in a godly way, this should be where you begin. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, mid-exhortation, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. He says, we have wronged no one. He is obviously here. He's come to a conclusion. He's, self, he's uh, inspected himself, and he's come to these conclusions, right? He says, we've wronged no one. That means to injure. Um, he says, we have corrupted no one. That word means to lead away from the truth. Right. There were a lot of false uh, preachers there in Corinth and they were leading the Corinthians away from the truth. And he also says we have cheated no one. That means to gain an advantage. So here's how we apply this when it comes to godly confrontation. First, it says, open your hearts to us. Can you say that to that person? Let me put it this way. Would you open your heart to you? (laughs) Are you trustworthy? With secrets, for instance? Would you open your heart to to you, yourself? He says, we've wronged no one. Here's a motive check. Am I into this confrontation to injure this person? Because that's what that word means, to injure. He says, we've corrupted no one. Am I into this confrontation to lead someone to myself? That's what the, the, the preachers were doing, the false preachers. They were coming in and leading people away from the truth and to themselves. And lastly... He says, we've cheated no one. That means to gain an advantage. Would your motive be to gain an advantage in that person's eyes, to have them think that you are spiritual? Okay? 
These are a lot of qualifying things you need to look at if God is calling you to confront. Look at verse 3. He says, I do not say this to condemn. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. If God is calling you to confront, and believe me, he will, he probably has, he might be right now. If he's calling you to confront, what is your motivation? Is it to condemn them? To cut them down? To give them a piece of your mind? Now remember, Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ. Correct? What's an ambassador to do? He, he represents the land, the king from whom he comes. Would condemnation, if my goal is to give you a piece of my mind to condemn you, would condemnation be a good representation of Christ? No, because John 3.17, Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So you, you can't be an ambassador for Christ and go around saying, Okay, I have the ministry of condemnation. If your desire is to confront, is to condemn, then you are not the one for the job right now. As a matter of fact, notice he says, uh, middle of verse 3, <clears throat> For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul says, look, I've said this before, I'll say it again. You will always be in our hearts. He says to die together and live together. He says you'll be in our hearts in death and in life. Whenever I read this, I get a picture of like two war buddies, two, two buddies that, that have been in the foxhole together. He says, look, if we die together or if we live together, we will stay together. Uh, a, a popular vernacular, come hell or high water, I'm staying right here. Listen, this is what godly confrontation looks like. And it's good to pay attention because you will be asked to do this. This is what godly confrontation looks like. Basically this. Look, no matter what, I will love you. No matter what, I will always be rooting for you. I'm, I'm willing to help you out of this sin or problem. If, if you're called to confront a brother or sister, you need to be willing to stick by them through it. Let me put it this way. If you're called to confront, it doesn't go like this. I've identified your problem. Now good luck with that. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that? He didn't say to the blind man, Hey, I know what your problem is. You're blind. Now fix that. He didn't say to the demon possessed, Look, you've got a whole bunch of demons in there. Good luck with that. And to you and me, he didn't say, You guys are sinners. Get it together. Jesus didn't do that. He comes alongside. <clears throat> he, he died on the cross for us that we might live with him. Godly confrontation doesn't write somebody off. It's coming alongside and saying, look, you've got a problem, but I'm willing to walk through this with you. Look at verse 4. He says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. <clears throat> Excuse me. And great is my boasting on your behalf. Now, remember, I, maybe for some of you, if you haven't been with us, the, the relationship between Paul and the, the church of Corinth is definitely a fiery one. It's one where Paul has corrected them a lot. And he says, verse 4, look, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Look, I, he's like, you know me, I don't hold anything back from you. When you need correction, I give you correction, Paul says. But he says, great is my boasting on your behalf. 
The, the word boldness of speech there means an openness, a frankness without ambiguity. He, he doesn't uh, work his way around their sin. Godly confrontation, listen, is open. It's frank. It's plain. It's easily understood. It starts out this way. Look, okay, I've checked my motives and I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to walk with you through this. And I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you this. You need to change. For instance, you've, you've got an addiction. Or you're hurtful to the kids. Or you're not walking in forgiveness. Or you've been slacking here or there. Insert the problem there. Now listen, it's not intentionally hurtful. It's not designed necessarily to hurt, but it could happen. The, the, the word you need to look at is the word plain. He says, my boldness of speech towards you, that word is plain. It means frank. You cannot be misunderstood. So that means if you're in a loving uh, attitude, you can say, this is the problem. But check out the rest of the verse. It says, great is my boldness of speech towards you, but also great is my boasting on your behalf. Paul says to these guys, look, I'm direct with you. I'm frank. I'm open. I'm bold in correction, but also... When I talk about you to others, you should hear how I brag upon you. Look, look down with me at verse 13 and 14. This will give you perspective. Paul bra- actually bragged to, about these guys to Titus, his buddy whom he sent on this, with this letter. Look at verse 13. He says, Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed." But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. That last sentence there is a kind of a restatement of this, this verse. He says, look, I said, I said it plainly to your face. You've got to fix this. He says, but when I talked to Titus, you know what I said? They can do it. I know they can do it. I'm going to send this letter. I know that they'll respond the right way. And, you know, Titus, if he's paying attention at all, he's probably going, yeah, right. Titus, if he's, if he's looking at it, he's going, okay, wait a second, Paul, this is the, the Corinthian church. Uh, let's see, they're famous for fornication. They're uh, just basically destroying the communion table. They, they're suing one another. All of those things. And Paul says, look, I believe in these guys. That, that's an amazing thing. See, godly confrontation looks like this. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, and I will tell you the truth even when it hurts. But you know why? Because I believe in you because I actually believe that you can change it's a very small example of this but when I I sing at Disney and and when we have subs in some of them do really well and they just need a little bit of correction maybe some of them it's like oh that wasn't good at all and and depending on how bad it is might depend upon how much I say Right? If it's a hopeless cause, you're like, okay, we just won't call that person much next time. But if it's someone that you believe in that you say, you know what, they can do this, then you're very particular with them and you're not shy about pointing out the things that need to change. That's the way Paul was. He's look, I'm honest with you, but you know what, I brag about you. Verse 4, great is my boldness of speech toward you, but also great is my boasting on your behalf. You guys notice this? That's exactly the opposite of the way the world does it. 
The world does it just the opposite. They will praise you to your face, but then behind your back, they will say all of the hurtful stuff. Paul, God love him, he will run you down to your face, but say good things about you behind your back. But do you get it? It's good to say good things to people to their face, by the way. But this is what godly confrontation looks like. It's very plain. It's very bold. It's direct. It's in love. But it also says, you know what? They can do it. I believe that they can respond the right way to this correction. Verse 4 again. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Then he says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Let me read to you the New Living Translation. It says, you have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. Wow. Paul can find something to encourage these guys about. He he can find something good to say even about the Corinthians. By the way, that's another way that godly confrontation looks. Is that you can find something to say, hey, you know what? You're blowing it here. But I want you to take notice. Over here, you're doing something good. Now, Maybe you could apply that over here. But I want you to notice a couple dramatic words here. Really dramatic. He says, I am filled with comfort. It doesn't look all that dramatic in the the English, but in the Greek, it's pleru. It means to fill to the brim, to be completely full, like just surface tension holding that glass of water together there. And the word, uh, he says, exceedingly, says we are exceedingly joyful. That word means to superabound, to abound beyond measure. It's like the saying super, super duper joyful. Now, that's particularly amazing when you finish the sentence. Paul says, I am filled to the brim with comfort. I am superaboundingly full of joy in all our tribulation. <laughs> Once again, if you've been with us, you know, it's like you look at Paul and you're like, what gives with this guy? Over and over again. He talks about we have tribulation, but we have this great joy. It's that abundant life that Jesus talks about. Once again, we are left standing slack-jawed at Paul's words. How does that go? Remember, you can look in chapter 11 if you want. You see all the beatings, the whippings, the stonings. And in the midst of it, Paul says, look, I'm brimming with comfort. I'm super abounding with joy. It's like either he's crazy or he gets something. What gives? What could give Paul such a boost in the midst of these great trials? Look at verse 5. He's going to lay the, the groundwork here for these trials. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, and inside were fears. Paul is setting the stage here. He's saying how messed up he was and what, what a great joy and comfort is coming his way. But there's a bit of irony here. Paul says, we came to Macedonia. You know what Macedonia means? It means extended land. It means wide open space. But you know what the word troubled means? Thalipsis, pressed in. Pressed in on every side. Paul says, look, we left Troas, remember? We left Troas and we went to look for Titus. And we came to Macedonia and we thought, surely Titus is going to be here. We're in this big, wide, extended land, wide open land, and yet we are pressed in on every side. We can't enjoy it. He says there's no rest in our souls. Now, Paul left Troas because he couldn't rest. And he gets to Macedonia, wide open space, and what? He can't rest. The word rest there actually is anesis. It means loosening, to relax. 
Paul could not relax. And he says outside were conflicts and inside were fears. Well, the outside conflicts, the word conflict means fighting. Those are well documented. We've talked about those over and over again, right? The beatings, the whippings, the stonings, all those things. But what were the fears inside? Well, we've already alluded to it. The, the fear inside Paul that drove him to Macedonia, that drove him to look for Titus, that every time he, he was breathing, he was like, where's Titus? Where's Titus? I've got to hear from Titus. What was the fear that was inside of Paul? Well, it was this question. How did the Corinthians respond to that letter? Should I have, should I have done it? You have those second thoughts, right? You know the Lord is speaking to you. says, yeah, say this or write this. And then you're like, oh, should I have done that? That's where Paul was. Paul was thinking those fears on the inside were probably things like these. Did they repent of the things I confronted them on? Or did they just blow the letter off? Did they burn me in effigy? Surely, surely they didn't harm Titus. I haven't seen Titus in a while. I hope he's not harmed. Oh man, if they killed him and I bragged to him about that, that's not good. I'm going to have to answer to that in heaven. You know how your mind races? Right when you hit the send button. You're like, oh. That was the kind of thing that was going on in Paul's heart. Paul was in this wide open space of Macedonia. Outside were fights and inside were fears. Does that describe any of you this morning? Outside is fighting. And inside is fears. If that describes you, we have good news because we're going to see now what godly comfort looks like. Look at verse 6. He says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. The word downcast there means not rising far from the ground. It means brought low with grief, depressed, lowly in spirit, humble. You don't have to raise your hand, but does that describe you? This morning, brought low by grief or conviction or condemnation or by your circumstance. What I want you to see here, if that's you, verse 6, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. Do you see that he's in the business of comforting the downcast? That's what he does. Comfort, that is a very familiar word to most of us. It's perikaleo. It means to come alongside, to draw to one's side. If you are downcast this morning, God wants to draw you to his side this morning. But notice this. Notice specifically with me how God did it in Paul's case. Never, verse 6, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, how did he do it? He comforted us by the coming of Titus. This is important, especially if you're downcast this morning. Oftentimes, God wants to comfort us by way of other believers. I wonder how many times God has sent you or me a comforter, a, a Titus, and we missed it. We, we, we feel sorry for ourselves. We, we're, we're not taking comfort. God sends a Titus. They say, how are you doing today? Well, I'm pretty good. Or, you know, how are you doing today? I'm super. I'm great. Everything's good. And your, your heart is saying to your mouth, are you crazy? You need prayer. You need to share this with someone. Don't carry around this any longer. Or worse yet, there are, are folks who are depressed, who are down, who won't even come to church 
because they are so downcast. You guys know I've said this before. The enemy loves that. He really loves that. To keep the downcast separated from the Tituses. To keep the downcast separated from those who could bring God's comfort. I've said it before, but I think it bears repeating. The word says our enemy goes around like a, a lion and he's seeking whom he may devour. How does a lion operate? He looks around. He sees the weakest, the hurting, the slowest. And then he works his way to see if he can separate that one from the herd. And then they're set up for the kill. If that's you this morning, if you're the weakest, the slowest, the hurting, the enemy wants you to just keep it all in. Keep it all together. Not let anybody know. Please don't do that. Don't let the enemy fool you like that. This room, I guarantee you, is filled with Tituses. Tide-eye. Tide, I don't know. The room is filled with Tituses. My challenge to you is to let God comfort you this morning. A lot of times the way he wants to do that is to share your heart with a Titus. But notice, Paul was comforted not only by the coming of Titus, verse 7, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. That's where Paul's, that's how Paul can say, look, I was in the midst of all these troubles and you Corinthians, you you guys made my day. Now remember, for the Corinthians to be able to make Paul's day is a pretty amazing thing. How did, how did they do it? Well, Paul's looking around in Macedonia. Finally, Titus walks up. He's like, oh, it's so good to see you. They didn't kill you. That's good. And he's, he's being comforted by the presence of Titus, but also by the news that Titus has. Basically, verse 7 says that Titus came back saying, Paul, you were right. You bragged about these guys. You said that they would respond the right way. They responded beautifully to that letter. He said that the proper response to that corrective letter was this. He says, an earnest desire. He said, Paul says, I was so excited when I heard of your earnest desire to make things right. And he says, when I was so excited when I heard of your mourning over your sin. He said, I was so excited when I heard of the zeal that you had for me. That fervent desire to make things right. And so, but now Paul is going to backtrack verse 8 and share about that moment of panic. At the mailbox. Verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. You can put in the word now. Though I did regret it. Paul says, look, now, now that I know the whole story, I am so glad I sent that letter. He says, but there was a long time where I was not glad that I sent that letter. There were many days after I sent Titus off that I thought, what have I done? I should have said it differently. I'm going to kill our relationship. Listen, you guys, sometimes that's what godly confrontation looks like, too. You're just sure, even though you've done everything right, you're just sure that you've killed the relationship. It can feel that way, but if they will respond, that will pass. Because look again, verse 8. Paul says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, make, make no mistake, this letter that Paul wrote, it hurt. It hurt. Because if you look at the emotions that were written uh, back in that, that previous verse, that letter did hurt, but he says, though only for a while. The word while there is hora, 
It means a certain definite time, a season. It means a time with an ending. Paul says, look, I'm actually glad that I wrote this letter now, knowing everything, because like medicine or surgery or discipline, it was unpleasant for a while, but now the rewards are great. Pastor David Gusick points this out. He says, you know what? Worldly, worldly sin is pleasant for a short while, right? The Bible says that. But it's regretted forever. But godly sorrow is painful for a while. But it's never regretted. Look at verse 9. He says, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Paul says, look, I, I'm not rejoicing that the letter made you sad, that it hurt you. Paul's like, I'm, it's not like when I heard, ah, good, cut those Corinthians down a peg. No. He says, I'm, I, what I'm glad about is that that sorrow, that hurt, led to a real change. Real repentance. By the way, that word repentance is a really important word. We're going to talk more about it on next Sunday, but we're going to talk some more uh, today as well. We're going to come back to it for now. Now I rejoice that you, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. He says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Words suffer loss there means to do permanent damage, to sustain damage. Paul says, look, I'm glad that I sent the letter. I know it hurt, but I'm so glad it did no permanent lasting damage. On the contrary, actually, the, the, look at verse, uh, the middle of verse 9. He says, the sorrow that you have led to repentance. See, that is the, the beautiful goal of a godly confrontation. Repentance. Let's talk a little bit about it. We'll probably talk more next week. This word repentance. It's not a very popular word these days. Repent. How many of you get happy, joyful feelings when you hear that word? Repent. It means to change your mind. It means to change your direction. It's not very popular these days because it means admitting, first of all, that you're heading in the wrong direction. Let me give you a few practical definitions, maybe, of religious words. Confession. What does that mean? It means to say the same thing, to agree with God, to say the same thing about your behavior that God says. He calls it sin. He doesn't call it a mistake, a bad judgment. He calls it a sin that needs to be repented of. Confession is when you say the same thing as God, which is, Lord, you're right. Lord, I'm wrong. Lord, I've blown it. Lord, I, I lied. I cheated. I stole. Whatever it is. Lord, I agree with you. I admit it. That is confession. Let me give you a, a practical example. Guys, you know when you've been driving around for an hour and your wife has been begging you to stop and ask for directions? And you finally say, all right, all right, we'll stop and ask. Well, that's a form of confession. That's when you say, all right, all right, you were right, I was wrong. But the difference between confession and repentance is huge. Repentance is another step beyond. Repentance is when you go, guys, into the gas station. And you say, um, where am I? And they say to you, oh, dude, you've been going the wrong way for like an hour. And, and you need to turn 180 degrees and go back that way. 
Repentance, you still haven't done it yet at that point. Repentance is when you get in your car and actually turn 180 degrees and go back. See, if you climb in your car after that, your wife is looking at you smug, and you drive the same direction you've been going, that's stupid, and it's not repentance. If you actually change course, no matter how embarrassing it is, that's repentance. We're going to talk more about that next time because we're going to see more things in these next verses that we don't have time for today. So we've seen what godly confrontation looks like. We've seen what godly comfort looks like. Now, we won't cover it completely again, but one, one last thing here on what godly contrition looks like, what this repentance looks like. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's a really good verse to memorize, by the way. Because how many of you have ever been sad? Oh, wow. Some of you guys are really happy. Amazing. All of us have had sorrow. All of us will have sorrow. The question is, where does the sorrow come from? That's the key. He talks about two different kinds of sorrow. He says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You really want to figure out which of these two things you're dealing with. Quickly, godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. Two different things. Every single person in jail is sorry. You won't find anybody in jail who's not sorry. Problem is that some of them, maybe most of them, are sorry they got caught. When you're sorry you got caught, that is the sorrow of the world. This week, pretty much every week, this week, the, the, the people that are sorry du jour would be like Michael Vick and the senator from Idaho, I think. They, they, they both have said they're sorry. Now, we, we can't judge their hearts. We can't know if they have this godly sorrow or this sorrow of the world. There's no way that we can know for now, for now but time will tell. How do, you, how do you tell between when someone says, I'm sorry, and they're really sorry in a godly way, and when they're just sorry they got caught? How do you tell? Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance. Godly sorrow re- results in a turning around, produces repentance. And what does that do? It leads to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That worldly sorrow, being sorry that you got caught, just continues to produce death. If you go in the same direction you've been going, even though you know it's wrong, it continues to produce death. What kind of death? A myriad of possibilities. Death of a relationship death of trust, it can even produce physical death. I mean, you you read of those estranged relationships where men beat their wives and they, they come back and they say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. They have tears, but they have no change. And you see the end of that is death sometimes. And suicide is this sorrow of the world that is, has no repentance The product of worldly sorrow can also be suicide. But godly sorrow, but on the other hand, you can tell it by what it produces. Repentance. An actual change of direction. 
And that change of direction, it says, leads to salvation. The salvation of a marriage. The salvation of a relationship. The salvation, the saving of your health. Or of your job, perhaps. Quick, we're almost done. Two examples. The best examples of these two kinds of sorrow are Judas and Peter. Right? They both betrayed Jesus on that night. The Bible says they both went out and wept bitterly. They were both really sorry. Judas was sorry. He even confessed. He said, I've betrayed innocent blood. But he never repented. He never changed direction. He never changed course. He never came to Jesus. See, the sorrow of the world produces death. But Peter, ah, Peter, he went out and wept. He wept bitterly. He was sorry. But what what was the next picture of Peter? Running to the tomb. Running to see Jesus. Do you get it? What happened to Peter? (laughs) Salvation. He was used mightily of God. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas and Peter, they both blew it. They both wept over their sin. They both had sorrow. One had godly sorrow, leading to repentance, which led to salvation. The other had the worldly sorrow, which produces death. May I ask you the last question? When you blow it, when I blow it, which are you? Judas or Peter? Let me leave you with one verse, Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus can do that.